Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe and welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. And I'm very excited to have Ellen Leibeter back in the studio with me. Hi, Jake. I'm very excited to be back. (laughs) Have you missed, uh, well, being internationally abroad, um, I guess you weren't being, were you being sustainable? Okay. Every time I got on a plane, I thought about how unsustainable I was because, Mm. you know, we did that sustainable tourism story and it's every time you get on a plane, you're doing damage to the environment. So I think I've come back here and I'm trying to offset my carbon footprint a little bit. Well, you're back in time for its National Science Week this week, which is exciting. I definitely timed that. I wouldn't miss it for the world. There's one story that we're doing today, and I want to ask you something. How many times have you watched something in the news, or you've read an article online, and there's a new science report out? It could be from like the CSIRO, or there's a new spokesperson talking about an issue, science-related, and you just have no idea what they're talking about. I, I got to admit, sometimes my eyes glaze over a bit. Not so much because I don't understand what they're talking about, but more because it just feels like we are regurgitating the same information over and over again. And uh, that's something we're actually going to unravel today as well, is what does it take to get the average person to listen to science these days? And not even just to listen to what's happening in the science space, but to listen to the scientists. A lot of the time they can't really communicate it in a way that you understand as just Mm. an everyday person. Um, That's coming up a little later on. But as well, we're going to take a journey to the middle of the sea Stay there for a couple of weeks <laughs> and find out some more about... And work on our tan. And work on our tan, but also find out more info about some of the smallest marine organisms on the planet. How small are we talking? You'll find out. But up first... Hey, guys. Sorry, I left my key next to my okay. Thank you. I'm at the Australian Technology Park in Redfern, Sydney, and I'm heading through the maze of doors and stairways in the innovation building here to get to the biohacking labs of BioFoundry. This is Meow. He is the founder of BioFoundry. So this is this is a yeast, and then this is some other sort of fungus. In the lab, there's a microscope, a bunch of other machines, which I don't know their purpose, and petri dishes with growths inside them lined all over the table. So if you have a look, it's got little like it's got like little balls on the top. What are they? So they are called the fruiting bodies. Pretty much all of them are full of mold. And the biology of mould is something that really helps Meow with his particular experiments. Sometimes. And so one, what does this mould then do for us? This one does shit all. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so the, I'm actually looking for the yeasts for the palm oil project. But there could be like antibiotics in here, a new antibiotic that no one's discovered. When you think about science labs, typically they're another world, right? Isolated chambers where suited up researchers are conducting experiments. Well, not at Biofoundry. Biofoundry is citizen science, or what some call biohacking, meaning these labs are open to anyone with a knack or interest for biology. Even I had a look down the microscope. Um, So what can you see? I'll let you have a look. It's really hard to resolve what they are. I don't want to open up the top. Have a look. So that's like, um, 
Oh, whoa. Yes, that's <gasps> just Yeah. What is it? Um, that's, the, that's the fruit in your body, so it's growing for your business. The main practice at Biofoundry is something called biotechnology. But Miao says everyone has different ideas of what biotech actually is. Well, if you ask people what biotech is, if you ask 10 people, you get 10 different answers. Like, like honestly, it, it's, it's a really complicated thing. From, from my mind, the biggest driver is using microbes to do jobs for us that are either expensive or difficult. Tricky, right? Well, here's an example. So an example would be um, Clara Foods over in America made egg whites. So yeah, from bacteria. So oh. what they did was they took the genes for egg whites because it's only it's it's a very simple thing. So you know it's made up of seventy percent albumin, I think it is. So they took the gene for that and put it inside a yeast, and they took these three proteins, they mixed it together, and they were able to, the way you would brew alcohol, brew egg whites. So imagine all the chickens on the planet just carked it. No chicken means no chicken to eat, no eggs. But this is just one scenario. Some people are taking this to a whole other level. And I met some of those pioneers and they were doing cancer research in like a garage in America. It was mental. Yeah. Cancer research? What, what, how? So when you do cancer research, there's, there's a few things involved. So you're working on human cells generally. So they had um, big BSC2 hoods, which allow them to do work aseptically so that they don't contaminate the work and the work doesn't contaminate them. And then they were buying reagents and getting immortalized cell lines, which means that they can replicate these things and have a look at cancer mechanics. Miao says all of this can happen because everything is connected. Every living organism has DNA, and now we're able to genetically modify organisms to do something different, something other than what they normally do. We can create solutions to problems humanity faces by looking at things like mould. Yeah, moulds are the best, they're by far the most interesting. And is mold easy to make? Yeah, man. I just like, like seriously, it's like leave stuff out until it gets moldy, and then transfer it to a plate. <laughs> oh, here you go. This is pretty cool. And yeast. So um, this university overseas worked out that there is a yeast that makes uh, an oil that's identical to palm oil. So we are trying to isolate that yeast, and if it works, we will be looking at commercialising it. Oh, because then, you know, where, where is the initial palm oil coming from? Ooh. So most of it comes from Southeast Asia. And unfortunately, it's very, very cheap to burn down rainforests, and that's home of orangutans. So it's, it's got a really nice narrative, if we can get this out there, because it's, it's not a GMO yeast, it's a natural yeast. It's a way that biotech can impact the world in a really positive way. It's a huge market, and that obviously drives the destruction of rainforests in places like Borneo, which is devastating. But to be able to do all this stuff, you need the right equipment. And that equipment can be pretty expensive. How are they getting all this stuff? Buying it. So I think the biggest thing was the emergence of the second-hand lab market in America. Uh, one of the groups I'm working with in Michigan State Uni, we're developing biological sensors. This is Peter Ralph, executive director of the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney that in my past I would have bought an instrument for twenty to thirty thousand dollars. We can now make it for two, three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Open source. Anyone with a soldering iron can sit down and, and make this instrument. This is because technology gets old. And these days it gets old pretty quick. And when it gets older, it gets cheaper. This is something that helped Meow. 
on the back of that kind of that that rolling equipment that's coming through all the time, Biofoundry was able to get a lot of its equipment very, very cheap. In fact, most of it was free, donated by universities. And speaking of unis, Miao says places like Biofoundry can help some get to that next step. We provide a bit of an IP haven where you can leave university. Um, you can continue developing an idea you might have had as you're as an undergrad or um, later on do a PhD and then work on that your, yourself until it's a truly new thing and then you have the freedom to be able to launch that. What's one of the best ideas you've heard come uh, through? We worked on a project called Lamp Diagnostics, which is at-home STI checking. So we made a little device that allows you in 20 minutes to be able to find out whether you have STIs. How does that work? That's very complicated, actually. <laughs> uh, so, so everything has DNA, right? Viruses, b- bacteria, any disease you have is either going to be DNA-based or RNA-based. So we made a device that uses this technology called a PCR. This one's using a very special type of PCR, though. And we put a fluorescent probe in. And basically what, what this means is as, if, if it detects the piece of DNA or RNA that it's looking for that's unique to that virus or bacteria, in that 20 minutes, if it's there, it starts making more copies of it. As more copies come about, it starts glowing. Right, and then that is, when it starts to glow, does that mean that it's detect some sort of STI? That's right. So we have positive and negative controls in there that make sure that it's not just a red, uh, that, that for some reason it's gone a different way than we expected. And we use this as a screening test. The problem is that under, under Australian law, we can't really um, sell that as, as anything other than a research device at the moment. But we have been contacted by government bodies that were very, very interested in using this in high-risk places like sex worker, outreach facilities, nightclubs, Scary Canary. (laughs) You can put that on the radio. (laughs) You know it. You know it. Like, it's so true. I actually know, right? (laughs) Meow Disco Gamma, founder of Biofoundry. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. Ellen, did you do science in school? I actually topped biology. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I would say that. So you you must be, like, one of the people to potentially venture into biohacking then. Maybe, yeah. Look, I think if I wasn't doing journalism, I'd probably be doing science. Mm. And so you might understand more of that jargon that's thrown around when it comes to biology related news like are there words that are said or words that you hear or written down that you you understand whereas you throw them in I'm like what yeah absolutely I you know it's only year 12 science which you know isn't a bachelor's degree in science or anything but yeah I do think there's a few words out there that I might get that the average person wouldn't get someone who maybe didn't study biology but then again if you start throwing physics terms at me I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) Well, interesting you say physics because our next guest actually has a physics degree. Um, But at the moment, she's doing the science outreach program at the University of Technology, Sydney. And she says that physics degree hasn't necessarily helped her understand all the jargon that's out there. Yeah, pretty much anything in the life sciences. Right. So, <laughs> which, in, which encompasses what? It's huge. So anything in medical science, environmental science, biotechnology, gene therapy, all of that stuff is, is not things that I have a background in. And I have to admit, coming through with physics, I thought, oh, well, physics is the hard science. You know, it's, it's very difficult. All the other sciences are easy. Mm-hmm. And then when you actually talk to people studying those areas and doing really high-end research... 
it's quite difficult to follow. So I had a chat with um, Willa Houston, who's one of the mm. academics here, who's doing some really cool stuff with um, koalas and chlamydia and things like this. Mm. And she was talking me through what one of her research students was doing. And I was completely lost. They were extracting some protein from celery or something. And <laughs> she explained it about four times. And I had no idea what was going on. Eventually, I did get there. And eventually, I did start to understand it. But it just, it's amazing how much information there is out there that you just can't follow. And it, it, it may sound like something so basic, but the way that you communicate it is crucial. Yes. Because if you can't get someone to listen, or if, if someone doesn't understand what you're telling them, they don't care. Yeah, they will switch off. And you see this with the school kids all the time. I've had... PhD students that have come and given a talk and I'll follow what they're talking about because I've sat down with them and discussed it but if they don't pitch it right to the students they would just completely and utterly turn off and get bored and even if it is something really interesting and I'll be sitting there going but this is amazing if they can't follow it they're not going to make the effort to you need to make it easy for them for me when I'm working for me in radio the best thing to do for the listener is to create a picture. So I know it's a, a, a medium that you listen to, but the best thing for the listener is to create a picture so that they can imagine it in their heads and they go, oh, okay, this is all the pieces coming together. What do you try to do in, in your outreach programs to make it interpretable? The main thing that I often do is analogies. So what I found working with school kids in particular is if you try and make it relevant to them through something they will understand and that sometimes means you might have to from the academics point of view oversimplify it but as long as ever you keep everything accurate then I think it's okay and as long as you allow them to ask more questions it's okay but analogies work really well for that so give them something they will be familiar with so we've used analogies like uh, kamikaze pilots, for example, which work really well when you're talking about targeting particular cancer cells in the body. Um, one of our presenters uses analogy of baking a cake to um, about how when you put different ingredients in and mix them up and apply heat, you get something very different out. And that's to do with, again, in the life sciences, it was a medical science sort of treatment. So there's these analogies that might, at first glance, not sort of look like they make sense, but once you actually break them down for the students... By the end of it, they've actually gained quite a good understanding and because they can relate it to something they can visualise, got that visualisation again, uh, it makes it a lot easier for them to know what's going on. And it's funny that you say that about the academics in terms of oversimplifying a topic that you might want to untangle. How do academics normally feel about that oversimplifying of something? I think for some of them it's a struggle because they view understandably every aspect of what they do is really, really important and if you leave one component out they see it as a big gaping hole but from the perspective of someone who you're just trying to engage in the science and just spark that initial interest you can't have everything in there because it's too much and they get overwhelmed so you've got to simplify that doesn't mean you say it's wrong you've got to keep it all accurate there's nothing more annoying for people than being told something and then being told later oh well that's not actually right but being told this is a simplification but essentially how it works is fine and I think the academics, you know, their work's really important to them and they're really passionate about it. And a lot of them are amazing and want to talk about it all the time. But to convey to them that particularly for the high school students that I work with, um, as opposed to someone with a bit more of a knowledge background in science, you've got to leave things out. 
You've got to just focus on those key communication points, the, the main things you want to get across. And all of the secondary stuff is not vital and only can be included if you have the time and if it's not going to overwhelm them. So do you think most scientists care about that? As in because they're doing this research and this research is really important to them and for all we know it could be massively crucial. Do you think most of them are really focused on communicating that message efficiently? I think it's a growing trend. I think that there are still... I think in the past there were lots of scientists who were so focused on their research they didn't really care as much about communicating it to the general public because the focus was publish or perish. It was get your papers out, that's what's important. The more papers you get out, the better because that's how science is done. But I think in the past few years academics are starting to realise that they have to engage with the general public. They have to work with future scientists, with high school students, with the general public, with everyone even if they're not working in science because the public opinion and society's opinion is really important for funding, for giving value to science. And I think that academics are starting to realise that and some have picked it up a lot faster than others. Some are still very much just focused on the research, but there are a few that are really starting to lead that charge with, no, we have to communicate. We can just be on Twitter if we want, or we can actually be writing blog posts or people who contribute to the conversation, for example, who have started to realise that, yeah, you've got to talk to people and you've got to get that out there and you've got to get it out in a way that people can understand and relate to. I think also at the same time, at this time now, a lot more people, the lay people, are beginning to give a crap about science. Yes, like they do begin true. to care about it. So if there is if there are people out there who are speaking to them on their level, not only does that mean more people care, I think there is a greater public forum for scientific discussion. Yeah. Also, like you said, there would be the accommodation for it more in the news space. There would be more funding mm-hmm. for it. For sure. And I think people, you need to get science out there into sort of the general public, general public's mind and have them just accept that science is a part of daily life. And once people start doing that, then it's a lot easier for people to trust scientists because you have a problem with, with climate change, for example. Despite the fact that 99 out of 100 scientists are going to tell you climate change is happening and it's a man-made problem. There's always that one that doesn't and people can find that one paper out of 100 that disagrees and because people don't really necessarily understand the scientific process, they think they give that paper as equal weight to the 99 other papers that have come out. Or when a new paper comes out that says, oh, actually, we've now realised it's more this process than what we said before, people go, oh, the scientists don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand that science is a process of constant refinement. And I think that if we can get people to understand science more, they'll be a lot more accepting of it. Christy McMonagall from the University of Technology Sydney Science Outreach Program. Okay, so this is actually another question for you, doing biology in year 12. Do you, did you have an experience of science that was very heavily dominated by males? Actually, no. So I did go to an all-girls school and my year 12 biology teacher was this amazing female. Mm. So I guess, well, actually all the biology teachers were female and all the physics teachers were male, right. which is quite interesting. Um, but I guess it's nice to have females in science, technology, engineering, math, all those those STEM courses because 
it's really inspiring as a female to like to look up to other people who are doing that yeah exactly and i think when i was in high school as well there was kind of this mentality that girls don't do maths and girls don't do science so to have women actually doing that kind of um said no no to the naysayers sort of thing yeah i feel like that's also just another one of those gendered historical norms that men are more proactive in that space and it's it's funny you say that as well because i spoke to martina doblin and she's from the climate change cluster at the university of technology sydney um and she's quite prominent in this space and she actually got back from a trip on the RV Investigator, which is like that massive ship which goes out into the middle of the ocean and they stay there for like, I don't know, like three weeks, four weeks at a time conducting experiments. And so she does a lot of work with marine organisms and all that stuff. Um, So I caught up with her because she literally just got back. Well, the first days are very busy and a little bit tense for me. We have a shipping container lab that we take to sea nowadays and having the container lifted on the deck is a very satisfying um, thing because it means, oh, we're about to start. (laughs) The next phase is unpacking the container and making sure we've got our gear ready for um, our first experiments or samplings. If that if that day works well, I feel ready, you know. Um, But we're under in most cases uh, under time pressure to get everything unpacked. But because it's not like um, just setting up things in a laboratory, we have to make sure that things are secured because the ship will start to move as soon as it departs <laughs> port. Boat, we're so on yeah. a boat. <laughs> and, uh, and so we tie everything down. So, and we use this special non-slip mat to make sure things don't just slide off the bench, for example. So I'd bring a lot of line and eyelets with me and we can drill into the wooden benches um, and then we, we basically run around like handymen and we drill holes in, <laughs> in the countertops and we put these eyelets in and then we can tie our instruments to the bench. And so once that space compl- is complete, I'm like, oh, yes, we can depart. Um, and, and <laughs> you haven't even left the dock yet. <laughs> That's right. But as soon as we do that, it's interesting because we'll leave from Sydney on our next trip and so we're, we're, you know, sedately moving through the harbour. And it is a fantastic thing. It is like, oh, I'm on a cruise. <laughs> um, we call them voyages, though, to yeah. reflect that they're more serious um, <laughs> pursuits. But when, when you kind of get out towards the heads, a little bit like being on the Manly Ferry, then you start to feel the rocking. And, um, and certainly when you go beyond the heads, you're like, whoa, I'm on the ocean, because yeah. it's quite obvious. But, look, it is... Um, start of every journey you feel quite exhilarated and excited about what you're about to discover once we're in the rhythm of of the um of kind of life at sea for us it means getting up breakfasting and then we go straight to the laboratories normally and we might be collecting seawater out on deck or we might be checking on our experiments but it's kind of like well, if if I was going on a holiday cruise, I, what would I do after breakfast? I don't know, I'd read mm. a book or something. We we go to the lab just like we would on land. But, you know, then lunch is served and, you know, the washing machine and dryer are right there. So all the other everyday things that you need to do in life are really close at hand on a boat. So the whole system is really designed to make the most of the time at sea to to research. And there's nothing more satisfying to return having had a great adventure but knowing that you've got some really useful data. And and on this next um, trip, we're going to be doing some um, coring, some sediment coring, and I've never seen that at sea. What's that? So that's when they lower... Um, 
boxes um, with small tubes in them to hit the ocean floor in soft sediments and actually take the kind of upper however many metres of sediment. Mm. And then you bring that back up so you can analyse it. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and the the exciting thing about that is that it allows us to look at what's happened historically in time, and that's very difficult to do um, otherwise. How long are you on this ship for? It it depends. Um, I've done voyages as long as 53 days down to Antarctica, and uh, this trip was 14 days. To Antarctica? What were you you looking at there? I... I did this as a student. Mm. I volunteered and I worked for the Australian Antarctic Division and I volunteered to help them look at um, the dissolved oxygen in seawater and so I was charged with analysing hundreds of samples on the way um, there and back but I had the privilege to go and have the most amazing experience of going to the ice edge and Wow. And doing research with um, a bunch of glaciologists who were interested in the way that the ice moves. So what was it? Was it as cold as you imagine being, yes. being in Antarctica? <laughs> yes. Um, they equip you really, really well, right? So you've got um, thermals and fairy boots and a fantastic <laughs> jacket. And uh, so, so, I mean, you know, chance of frostbite is very, very low. And the ship was surprisingly warm. I had thought... I'm going to take all my winter woolies, but then I ran around on, with a T-shirt on. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, and I suppose that's sort of where I got my first taste of the adventure and just an amazing natural world around us. And I thought, wow, what if I could get paid to do this, you know? Mm. And here I am, you know, I guess more than a decade later, and I do get paid to do this. Ha! It's a good feeling. <laughs> So this was in university. You was a university student. Where did this interest in the sciences kind of come from? Good question. I I don't know that I had an aha moment, but I I do remember nerding out on stuff, right? So, you know, programming, you mm. know, as a kid and it, on some of the oldest Apple computers and, um, you know, just generating lines of code and, like, Hello, my name is Martino. <laughs> loop, loop. Yeah, and I really, I really like looking at data. And I, I think the revolution that's happened in the sciences with respect to the sort of data that we can collect now, with um, especially in marine um, systems, with new observing technologies and and new ways to kind of conquer the challenges of, of working in the ocean with, you know, optical technologies to see things that we haven't been able to measure before. And and I think the challenge really in society today is that we embrace science as a means by enriching and improving our lives um, and that it's not seen to be science fiction or something that sort of sits apart mm. and is really only for people that really understand the details of science, but to appreciate the fact that you can not only enjoy nature but understand it, you know, um, to, to know why the tides roll in every day or, you know, why uh, you see whales migrate down the east coast, you know, that, yeah, there's something to be said for scientists being part of the conversation in, in everyday life. Well, how do you think the face of the scientist has changed in the time that you've been involved in the science sphere? Oh, I'm pleased to say it's changed a great deal. So my, my teaching philosophy in this is if there's an interest, um, then your background and the way you look and the way you dress should not make a difference. And 
certainly, you know, Marie Curie is, is the, the female scientist that would probably be most recognised by the general public and not too many scientists since then. Um, but, I, I mean, I want to be part of a new generation of scientists. So I'm encouraging the people I work with and, and to be a good role model to, to not let gender in any way shape um, a person's future. My personal ambition is not to be on a coin <laughs> for the Australian currency, but more to show people that um, that it, you know who you are in terms of gender um, should, and background and race shouldn't matter. Um, but it's it's um, the legacy of what you've done that really will count. Martina Doblin, Associate Professor from the Climate Change Cluster at UTS. And if you liked this chat, you might be interested in an upcoming event happening at the University of Technology, Sydney. It's called UTS Speaks, Soaring in the Sciences, and you'll be able to hear a number of other cool stories about women who are involved in sciences. And that's coming up this week on Thursday, the 18th of August. And I'll put a little link to that in the show podcast notes so you can check that one out. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Lee Beater. See you next week.